The following is a First Nations Health Authority podcast. The FNHA is a health service delivery organization responsible for administering a variety of health programs and services for First Nations people living in BC. Find out more at fnha.ca. Welcome, I'm Char Normando, and today I'm hosting this panel on the ongoing opioid crisis within our province. With me is Dr. Nell Wyman, the Acting Deputy Chief of the First Nations Health Authority, and Len Pierre, who is with Fraser Health. My name is Dr. Nell Wyman, and I'm originally from Little Grand Rapids First Nation. I am a psychiatrist by training, but I currently work as the Acting Deputy Chief Medical Officer at First Nations Health Authority. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Len Pierre. I am Coast Salish from Keiti First Nation. My ancestral name is Kalikowak, and I am an educator um, by by trade, um, and I am a consultant for First Nation Health Authority and Fraser Health. So my first question would be, which drugs are causing unintentional overdoses, and why have they become such an issue? So part of the issue is that um, the number of opioid-related overdoses has been on the increase in British Columbia since around 2010-2011, but really increased around 2015, and the public health emergency was declared in April of 2016. And so the class of medications that we're generally talking about are called opioids, Um, which are a class of of medication, originally started as prescription medications uh, to treat pain, post-surgical pain, cancer pain, etc. And there are many different forms of these medications, such as hydrocodone, uh, oxycodone, fentanyl, and morphine. And what happened over the years is that the, you know, there was some diversion of prescription medications to illicit use. And then there was also manufacturing of more synthetic um, and more potent opioids that became quite dangerous when people started to use them um, in, in the way that people were using them. So much higher potency and, you know, relates to an increased risk of overdose events and deaths. So that's really kind of how the opioid crisis started. And as we've seen, the, um, the, the drug supply has become increasingly more toxic over the years. What has been the public health response to this overdose crisis? You know, when the public health emergency was declared, uh, the First Nations Health Authority uh, began to um, create a framework to respond to the opioid crisis um, that was guided by reciprocal accountability and underpinned by our teachings and cultural safety. So the four pillars of the framework include uh, preventing people from preventing people who overdose from dying, keeping people safe when using, creating creating an accessible range of harm reduction and treatment options, and then supporting people on their healing journeys. So there were a whole range of services, programs, interventions, Um, that First Nations Health Authority has led uh, for BC First Nations people who um, are involved with opioid use. I would just say that, you know, First Nations Health Authority has also been like a really good leader across the province in overdose response, because typically, you know, harm reduction implementation has been under two lenses. Um, one is political in that, you know, we save money in the healthcare system that we would spend in healthcare if we didn't have harm reduction. And then, of course, in a very uh, population public health lens, it's, it, you know, harm reduction improves the quality of life and saves lives. 
Um, but First Nations Health Authority, I think, in my experience of the last, you know, since the public health emergency was declared, you know, really started to implement community level, accessible means of uh, information sharing by having town halls, community based workshops for take home naloxone training, nasal naloxone training, and then now developing a a naloxone network where community communities across the province can engage with one another and share promising practices for community based nation driven uh, uh, overdose response efforts. And is the COVID-19 pandemic affecting the overdose crisis and how? Part of the challenge that we all face in British Columbia is we're operating under two concurrent public health emergencies, that of the COVID-19 pandemic and the opioid crisis. And as Len mentioned, you know, one of the most tragic unintended consequences of the public health measures that have been put in place and and recommended uh, have resulted in things such as people using alone. But the other factor was initially during the first several months of the sort of the strictest lockdown and the, the gradual opening up was some of the services that provide harm reduction and treatment uh, were you know, either closed for a period of time or significantly reduced their hours or accessibility and um, it made it much more challenging for people who use substances to access those services. And of course, what we saw was um, a significant rise in overdose events and deaths for all British Columbians, but particularly First Nations people. How is the overdose crisis affecting Indigenous people? We have been disproportionately represented in the numbers of overdose events and deaths, and particularly since the COVID pandemic, you know, the data that we have been able to release publicly covered a period of time from January to May 2020 compared to the same time period in 2019. And we found that overdose deaths increased by 93% this year in that time frame compared to last year. And also that we make up about 16% of overdose deaths in the province compared to, you know, we only make up around, First Nations only make up about 3.3% of the provincial population. So we are, you know, pretty disproportionately overrepresented in those numbers. And, you know, what they reflect, I think, are, you know, the reasons why people use substances in the first place is very complex. There's a whole number of reasons why that is so, but particularly for First Nations people who have a history of historical, intergenerational, and even contemporary trauma, you know, people use substances um, not necessarily because they want to, but because they're under such distress that they're looking for anything to change the way that they feel. And so we have to, you know, keep that in mind uh, when we're trying to develop, um, you know, effective uh, interventions, both harm reduction and treatment, because uh, you know, there are a lot of underpinning reasons why people use in the first place. How are Indigenous women affected by the overdose crisis? There's some discrepancies uh, between the general population's overdose data and our First Nations overdose data. Um, so, for, for example, in the general population, more men are, are represented in, in overdose death. Uh, but for us as Indigenous peoples in this province, um, our data reflects that it's actually our Indigenous women who are overrepresented 
Um, so in the general population, you know, roughly 75% um, of, of that, of overdose deaths are occur in, in people who identify as, as men. Um, but it's almost half and if not a little bit more for indigenous women. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that, you know, we, we wonder why that is. Um, but I think that, you know, conversations that happen at the community level really are just, you know, the amount of uh, possible trauma, grief, loss, and stress that Indigenous women experience um, in this country um, is so profound that it would have that effect uh, in our um, substance use, addiction, and overdose uh, rates as well. What are some of the barriers for people wanting to access services and get support? One of the things that I think, you know, needs to be mentioned and talked a little bit more about, you know, the dual public health emergency emergencies that we are in is that there's this underlying health crisis in our healthcare system as well. And now that there's a provincial investigation that is also underway uh, to explore uh, and investigate, you know, anti-Indigenous racism and systemic racism against Indigenous peoples when accessing healthcare services. So that raises a whole bunch of questions for how we are accessing very important life-saving information, life-saving uh, or harm-reducing services within communities across the entire province. Most of the harm reduction services like the supervised consumption sites or overdose prevention sites are essentially open to everybody. So they're, you know, they're, they're co-ed. So male and female identified individuals come and use those services, but there may be something in um, having uh, gender specific or female identified um, sites available to people as well as first nation specific. So for example, the um, uh, sister space just opened um, an overdose prevention site um, in the summer, I think in the early summer of this past year. And, and they have found that the, the women um, and female identified individuals who use that service really value it um, because it's a safer space for them. Um, and, you know, the staff engage them in talking about needs that are unique to them in some ways. And so that may be one reason why, um, another reason why our First Nations women don't necessarily use the harm reduction services that may be available to, because they're not you know, specific to women. Uh, but we have actually had uh, at First Nations Health Authority, we're still working on proposals to establish um, indigenous specific um, overdose prevention sites and, super, or, and or supervised consumption sites around the hot spots that we've identified um, in the province and that hopefully those proposals will be funded and we'll be able to set up those services as well. Who in your opinion are using substances and what is the root cause behind their substance use? We have this idea in our mind about you know the stereotype of who we think are our opioid users in this province and the data nowadays shows that, you know, it, it can literally be anybody. Um, so that's an important point to make. You know, people, I think, um, you know, they use substances for a variety of reasons. I mean, use of substances can be, you know, normative in some ways. If you look at people who, you know, have a drink after work and other people who, you know, it starts to become more problematic where they start overusing it and then it develops into a, a substance use disorder. So there's a whole spectrum of use as well. But, you know, people use 
people people basically when it becomes problematic, people are using because they want to change the state that they are in. Um, you know, opioids were the the one of the classes of medications or drugs that were considered because they have a relaxing effect on people, a sedating effect, a feeling of euphoria. Um, but unfortunately, the side effect of, of opioids is that it causes um, central nervous system depression and respiratory depression, and that's how people end up dying of overdose. Um, so that's those are some of the things we need to really keep in mind is those, you know, breaking down those stereotypes that we all have in our mind of who actually is using substances. And it really lends us to an idea that um, we are all in, you know, we are all in this together and it's our family members and our community members and our nation members that have to look out for each other. I, I echo everything that Dr. Nell has said. In reality, you know, we have people who use substances for a variety of reasons. We have people that use substances um, recreationally, medicinally, or we can have in a relationship with uh, addiction. So, you know, there's been stories shared, you know, with um, community members who said that, you know, when somebody experienced an overdose event or an overdose death, the entire community was kind of in this state of shock and awe because they had no idea that that person was using substances. And I think that that's also an important takeaway too, because it's what is happening that, you know, that we don't know who's using substances in our community. And again, as like, you know, just echoing what Dr. Nell was saying is that so stick, the stigmas associated with substance use are just so profound that nobody wants to be outed as a person who is using substances. Nobody wants to be identified as a person who is using drugs or, or in relationship with addiction. Um, so, yeah. And for the purposes, you know, why people use substances are, are completely varied, too, because recreationally, you know, uh, a drink after work or, you know, going to the occasional uh, concert or, or festival, you know, that's recreational substance use. But when we kind of have a relationship with addiction and, you know, that's where substance use becomes more problematic, really is to cope with uh, historical trauma, past trauma, uh, current trauma. Uh, probably grief, maybe loss, uh, a sense of loss or a sense of daily stress. Um, so people use substances, you know, to feel good about, you know, probably some not good things that are actually happening in their life at that time. How can we tell if a loved one's using? Oftentimes people are completely unaware that their family member or their friend is using substances. But in other cases, when it does become problematic, you know, there are a whole range of emotional, uh, physical, and behavioral changes that take place when someone has reached the point of a substance use disorder. You know, so for example, people could have mood swings um, that are kind of unexplained. Physically, they could stop, you know, their hygiene might go down, stop, you know, looking after their hair, they're brushing their teeth or bathing, um, and then sort of more behavioral, um, you know, signs like going missing for periods of time or spending money that, you know, can't necessarily be accounted for in any way afterwards, things like that. People will gradually, I think at some point when it becomes quite problematic, when people look back, they'll recognize, oh, there were actually a few little differences that I just, you know, I didn't take note of at the time, but now that you mention it. Um, and certainly for family members right now who are dealing with 
um, family who are using substances problematically, um, you know, there are definitely some changes that people will notice in, in their loved one's behavior. And how can people using substances stay safe during COVID-19? Well, I think the number one thing, and this is messaging that we try to share with with anybody, uh, anybody and everybody in our communities, you know, is to not use alone, um, not use by yourself. Because if you experience an overdose, there's nobody around to, you know, give you naloxone, provide rescue breaths, or, you know, call, and more importantly, you know, call for emergency services. So the number one thing that, that, that we are asking folks to do is, is to not use alone. And there's um, a whole bunch of great resources. Um, but then, you know, we also provide messaging to communities too, to, you know, do a little bit of safety planning so that, you know, what can you do um, to keep yourself safe when you're using your substances, to let somebody know where you are, um, have somebody be with you when you're using your substances. Yeah, I think um, just as Lens mentioned, you know, at, on the um, on many of the health authorities, but particularly First Nations Health Authority for First Nations people, we have a lot of resources on our website around how to use safely. So as Len mentioned, especially, you know, using with a buddy, um, carrying a naloxone kit with you, um, trying as best you can to keep your supplies and what you use, what you use with clean and safe as possible. I mean, the the real reality is that, you know, we are looking to, you know, looking at, at analyzing the risks involved in, in behavior. And in the midst of the pandemic, you know, people are, we're asking people to do the best that they can under the circumstances that they find themselves in. But ultimately, you know, the opioid crisis, we are you know, I think we've actually lost more people in this province due to an overdose than we have due to COVID. So, you know, when we hear public health messaging like, you know, stay physically distant of two meters, that may not be necessarily reasonable um, if people are in a using situation. But we're just asking people to be quite mindful of the risks and do what they can as best as they can under the circumstances to keep themselves safe. I mean, another example um, that has been uh, two things that have come out recently is drug checking, for example, is more available than it was previously. And there are some pros and cons to that as well. And the other, um, for people who live away from home or in urban settings, if they happen to have a cell phone uh, with data, with connectivity to the internet, they can use the lifeguard app. But for example, that's, um, that is an, that is a harm reduction tool that would only be available to people that find themselves in that circumstance. So people who are in rural and remote locations that don't necessarily have a phone or connection to the internet, that, that app for now is not available to them as one of the tools in their toolkit to keep themselves safe while using. And how can we provide support to a loved one who's using substances? Well, I think, you know, one of the most important things that we talk about in harm reduction is um, relationship building um, and treating people that we know, either a family member, or friend or loved one, um, who is using well, with kindness and respect um, and compassion and meeting them where they're at. That's what that's what harm reduction is all about. So um, I think it's, you know, 
um, part part of that right now because of the dual public health emergencies is you know at least to be able to have open conversations uh, with at least one safe person uh, to ensure that you know that the person who's using is doing as best as they can, as I said, under the circumstances that they find themselves in in order to keep themselves safe. I, I think about um, learning and just continuing to learn as often as you possibly can. Um, and I say that because, you know, quite often in our, where our current awareness about substance use and addiction comes from does come from, you know, not such good, credible sources like the, the media, uh, pop culture, uh, movies and, and those kinds of things. And it's way too easy, you know, to come across inaccurate information or possibly stigmatizing information through social media. Um, and I see this all the time on, in my own Facebook feed is where I'm, I come across a, a post that I think well-intentioned people share, but it's super stigmatizing to people who are using substances. And so I, I always invite people to, you know, not share those kinds of posts that, that are possibly stigmatizing. Um, so, you know, therein there's a call for to, to continue your learning, learning about substance use and also learning about harm reduction. You know, harm reduction has typically been mentioned just in a, a clinical health setting and a uh, political setting, uh, but making harm reduction conversations more home friendly uh, uh, and bringing them into the homes and bringing them into communities and everybody have, have engaging everybody in conversations around harm reduction and what it means to you, um, to you and your family, to you and your loved ones, to you and your friendship circles um, is a really great um, starting point. Uh, so learning about harm reduction and for, you know, Indigenous peoples, um, is to, you know, look at uh, indigenizing harm reduction. And in a time of, you know, this, this overdose crisis, there are a growing amount of resources and teachings that are shared by traditional knowledge keepers and elders and um, scholars and, and healthcare workers um, to kind of like take ownership um, and make uh, harm reduction resources more culturally relevant because when we're reflected in those resources, we're more inclined to, to use them and learn from them. Um, so I, I also recommend that, that folks, you know, look for Indigenous harm reduction resources. I think to expand upon, you know, that some of the resources that we have at FNHA, as, as Len mentioned, you know, there is a whole kind of framework around indigenizing harm reduction. So it speaks much more to people's kind of worldview and is more consistent with our, you know, holistic overall view of health and wellness. And, you know, there are literally like, there are many, many resources available on our website. And I would encourage people to go to the um, overdose response section of our website to check out all of the different um, categories of resources that are available. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the importance of having conversations too. Um, and I would also, you know, to, uh, when we're thinking about having conversations uh, with our loved ones who, to support our loved ones who are using substances, um, we also have resources on the First Nations Health Authority website around, you know, a conversations guideline, because sometimes, you know what, we love and care for our relatives and our loved ones so much that we we often are, are afraid of them harming themselves or, or losing their life potentially. So it can be an emotionally charged conversation. But we'll, we don't want to necessarily bring that into the conversations when we're talking about substance use, because quite often those conversations can 
almost naturally um, take the form or shape of um, being fear-based or being shame-based. But we know that fear-based and shame-based conversations don't help um, engage in meaningful learning uh, uh, conversations. Rather, we want our conversations to be respectful, kind, reflective, and always on a, land on a place of, of compassion. And how do we have compassionate conversations when talking about substance use? For me, you know, as, as somebody who engages in many, many conversations about substance use at the community level, I, I really, one teaching um, kind of really sticks out to me. And it's always that teaching of communication and having conversations. And I want to honor and recognize that talking about substance use, talking about addiction, and talking about stigma, you know, are not necessarily the easiest conversations that we can have with our, our relatives and with our loved ones that we care and love for so much. Um, but I think that they are important, that they are life-saving. And if we continue to have those conversations and, and we just come to that conversation with an open heart and an open mind and based on kindness and respect, what we start to do is we build up our most emotional resiliency to, to continue to have those hard conversations. And as Indigenous peoples, you know, we really are kind of well experienced in having, you know, challenging and complex conversations. So we do have that resiliency in us. And what we need to do is unpack a little bit of our own stigmas and stigma belief systems that we kind of have inherited from, you know, colonial belief systems. And that's part of our decolonizing and indigenizing type of work in the overdose uh, response that we do at, at FNHA um, as well. Um, so I always say lean into the conversation a little bit more. And if you don't know when to lean in, it's probably the moment where you kind of want to start to leave the conversation. That's a good sign emotionally that that's, uh, that's your invitation to lean in a little bit more. So does abstinence need to be the end goal? Sometimes the end goal is not abstinence. Maybe the, the end goal is moderation. Um, so reducing the frequency in which, you know, somebody is, is using their their substance of choice or uh, maybe the end goal for a, a different person would be substitution. So replacing one substance with with something that is to be deemed or interpreted as, as less harmful. Um, but again, always going back to that it's the person who is in control and has autonomy over those con kinds of conversations. And I think that's an important takeaway for communities and families too, because I, my sense is that there's a little bit of stigma associated with substitution therapy because um, there's no abstinence as an end goal for, for those programs all the time, because we think in this kind of like black, white type of mentality. And what we talk about with, with communities and with families um, is, you know, well, what would we rather have? Would we rather have, you know, our loved ones continue using toxic street uh, substances or something that is prescribed and and uh, monitored and supported um, and and you know that, that increases the amount of opportunity to uh, for the other things that are on that range of treatment services. How do we support loved ones wanting to move away from using those toxic street drugs? The thought that kind of comes to mind for me is is recognizing that your loved one, just like many of us, are on our own healing journey. And no two healing journeys, you know, are going to look the same. And so my, my, my recommendation here would be that, you know, we allow that loved one, that person that we care for, um, to exercise their own self-determination. So they need to be in the driver's seat for how they want their healing journey to kind of go, how they want treatment 
uh, to look uh, if they want to move move away from using toxic street drugs. Um, they need to be you have the power and the autonomy um, to create that plan to you know say what's going to work for them and what what's not going to work for them. Yeah, I, I think the only thing uh, that I would add around um, what Len was just sharing was, um, you know, we have to, we really have to have um, conversations around um, the help that is available for people. And I know this, you know, this is a, this is kind of a, it's a politically charged, it's emotionally charged topic for some people because, you know, there is a certain group of people, for example, who believe that abstinence only is the way to go. And, you know, we have always believed in supporting our First Nations people on their healing journey. As Len said, whatever that they choose that, choose for that to look like for them. And harm reduction can literally be on a spectrum. So abstinence for some people is what they choose and what may work for them. But that may not be everybody in that situation. And I think, um, you know, we have to we have to spend a lot more time, I think, having those conversations. Also, you know, reducing the stigma around substance use and the internalized stigma that people feel um, can be a barrier for people. You know, when they've decided to make some change, uh, that can be a barrier for them to to be to moving forward. You know, if they see themselves, if it's just they're full of guilt and shame for who they are. And that's feeding that stereotyped idea we have in our head of who substance, people who use substances are. So we need to challenge that. But once people move forward, you know, we have provincially and including for First Nations people now, we have a whole range of, of harm reduction services and treatment services, including opioid agonist therapies that are available because of the dual the dual public health emergencies, you know, we are now uh, working on initiatives to have nurses and registered, registered nurses, registered psychiatric nurses to be able to prescribe uh, opioid agonist therapy for now. And there's also an initiative provincially underway that's talking about what we call safe supply or pharmaceutical alternatives. So then that really the intent of that is to separate people from the really toxic drug supply that's out there right now. And we also have other resources um, at First Nations Health Authority, including uh, our First Nations virtual psychiatry and addiction medicine program that people can access directly. So clients, uh, people can access and see a specialist direct, directly, uh, though virtually. Um, and also people who work with people who use substances can access this service in order to uh, get some clinical guidance or support around working with people who use substances. So, um, and then we have, of course, um, FNHA funded treatment centers for those who choose to do that. And many of the treatment centers include, um, you know, culture and traditional activities, ceremony and also um, are inclusive of people who are currently on opioid agonist therapy. So, you know, the answer to that question really is, you know, there are, when, when help is wanted, uh, you know, we are looking to expand the help and accessibility across the province, but it is there. Um, but what we really need to, what we really need to, you know, overcome is the stigma and shaming 
and internalized stigma that people feel because that can be the biggest barrier um, to people seeking help. Thank you so much, Dr. Nell Wyman and Len Pierre for joining us. If you want more information about the resources FNHA has available, please visit fnha.ca. You have just listened to an FNHA podcast. Find out more about the First Nations Health Authority by visiting fnha.ca or by following us on social media. 